0: We are in Hebrews, uh, and last time, two weeks ago, uh, I believe was the last time we were together in Hebrews, we looked at chapter 8. We're going to pick up in chapter 8 again this morning, and then we'll see how far we get. Let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you so much for time together in Hebrews. We thank you for the author of Hebrews, whoever that may have been, uh, for the way that you prepared them, equipped them, uh, inspired them, and for their faithfulness in recording these things. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the truth that we find in the book of Hebrews, and we pray that we would indeed, by your Spirit, come to a right understanding of it. Not only that we would have that knowledge in our heads, but that it would change our hearts and make us more like Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, again, the, the book of Hebrews is uh, a letter from the author to the churches. Uh, And these churches at the time, in the first century after uh, Christ, these churches are made up of Jews who have believed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and Gentiles, many of whom were worshiping with the Jews in their synagogues before they received news of Christ. Uh, These Jews and Gentiles together, who have known the Old Testament and lived under the Mosaic Covenant are now, uh, best we can tell, as a result of persecution, tempted to either mix some of that Judaism with their Christianity, uh, really as a sort of camouflage, right? The, the Jewish uh, religion was not persecuted by the Romans as much, and certainly not in this particular time and place, but Christianity was increasingly becoming, or being recognized, as distinct from the ongoing Jewish faith, Uh, and as such was coming under more and more persecution. The most famous persecution in the first century was the persecution under Nero, and it's probably that persecution that in part has inspired this letter, uh, brought up the circumstances that required this letter to be written. And so the author of Hebrews, his entire uh, project is to to hold up Christ as the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant— such that that mosaic covenant is no longer in effect. God God gave the mosaic covenant for a purpose, it has fulfilled its purpose, and it is no longer in effect. And so there are some things that have changed. One of the ways we talk about this as uh, as, uh, Bible, uh, as students of the word, as theologians, Uh, We talk about the difference between the Old and New Testament. There are things that are the same and things that are different. Things that, uh, again, to use the the more technical language, there are continuities and there are discontinuities. And the the Mosaic covenant is one of those discontinuities. Uh, As a covenant, it ceases to have any force after Christ. Everything it was intended to accomplish, it has accomplished in Christ, and therefore it goes away. And that argument is made most explicitly right here in chapter 8, and particularly after uh, beginning in verse 8. So he, in chapter 8, he's, he's introduced or, or come back to and begun to unpack more fully the idea that Christ is a high priest of a better covenant. Uh, and so it's Even though the Mosaic Covenant is gone, it's done away with, it's not that God no longer is in a covenant relationship with His people, but that that covenant relationship is not the Mosaic Covenant. It's the New Covenant, part of what we would refer to as the Covenant of Grace. And so uh, that covenant, like the covenant made with the people uh, through Moses, The new covenant, the covenant of grace, has a high priest, and it holds out promises, and there is a sacrifice that's required, atonement that's accomplished, a people to whom God is making promises and being faithful to keep those promises, and so he's showing us how Christ is that high priest, and how he, as high priest, mediates a covenant, and that covenant's better than the old covenant. And so, look at how he talks about it. Verse 8, uh, having, having asserted that Christ is the high priest of a better covenant, he says in verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says. So, what, what the author is doing here is he's about to prove to you from the Old Testament that there was something deficient about the Mosaic covenant. And that that covenant, having accomplished its purpose, it wasn't deficient with respect to what God intended, but it was deficient with respect to its ability to actually save anyone. And having served its intended purpose, it's passed away. It's it's gotten out of the way of something greater. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. New in what sense? New in contrast with the covenant made with Moses and the people. That's the old covenant. Sometimes we use new covenant and old covenant language uh, almost as synonyms for the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that's not how the author of Hebrews is using that language here. The New Covenant is new, not in as much as it's the New Testament, but because in contrast to the Mosaic Covenant, it is new. The Mosaic Covenant is the Old Covenant. God says, and this is uh, from Jeremiah 31, Uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So there it is. That's what he's just established is the contrast with the new is the old. And what is the old? The old is the covenant made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. That's the Mosaic covenant. So when the author of Hebrews tells us that the old covenant's passing away, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant. God has said in Jeremiah 31, in the Old Testament, I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, not like the covenant, verse 9, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, or into their minds, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And in case we missed it, he closes this particular citation this way. In speaking of a new one, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the reason the author of Hebrews uses this present tense language, is becoming obsolete, is ready to vanish away, is because as he writes, the temple still stands in Jerusalem. Uh, sacrifices are still being offered. There's still a Levitical priesthood. But he says it is vanishing. It is becoming obsolete. And in fact, based on our, our best efforts at dating the book of Hebrews, it will be just a few short years, single digits, before the temple is torn down by the Romans, completely destroyed. And that's it. 70 A.D., and there has not been a temple or a priesthood sense. It's the law of Moses that is obsolete and growing old and vanishing away. And while that's present tense to the author, it is entirely past tense to us. We may say that it has become obsolete and has vanished away. There's not only no covenant, mosaic covenant in effect today, they are not even the signs of it, the trappings of it, it's vanished. There's no temple, there's no priesthood, there are no sacrifices. And with the, the lack of those things, there is no covenant. So the author of Hebrews, right here in chapter 8, if anybody was ever to say to you, you know, we talked about this a little bit, uh, that, that Christians seem to pick and choose which commands in the Bible they want to obey, right? Uh, you, you pick these over here, you're really mad about, uh, you know, gender issues, but you don't seem to be mad about mixing different kinds of uh, clothing or planting different kinds of crops together. Uh, you, you, you seem like you arbitrarily pick which laws you want to obey. That's not true. And it's not fancy theologizing that allows us to pick and choose between laws. But the Bible itself has told us that those Mosaic laws have passed away. They are no longer in effect. We are no longer bound by them. And I'm not going to go through all of it again because I've done it in detail at least twice. But I will remind you that in that law of Moses, running through that law was the moral law of God. And the moral law of God existed before Moses. And because it existed before Moses, it exists after Moses. And the reason we understand that that moral law is eternal is because it is nothing but an expression of the character of God himself, which is eternal. And for this reason, the moral law continues. This is why I can sit here and say to you that the law of Moses is dead, and the covenant made with Moses is vanished and obsolete, and yet the Ten Commandments we still keep. Those belong to the law of Moses. Why are they not abolished? Why have they not gone away? Because they are moral law. We see that, right? Thou shalt not murder. Murder didn't suddenly become wrong when the Ten Commandments were given. Murder had always been wrong, right? And so the Ten Commandments are an expression of God's character. His uh, his perfections, and we're called to keep those ten commandments as a summary of his perfect character. Let me pause. Uh, questions, comments, observations. Colleen, cl- Colleen. Oh, I know. too many calls. Well, one way to, to figure out the difference between civil and moral is that the civil would require a government to carry it out, right? The, the responsibility for enforcing the civil aspects of the law of Moses fell on the king of Israel and the, the civil government in Israel. So for example, one of the, the most obvious aspects of civil law in the law of Moses is the death penalty. Right there are uh, uh, penalties for the sin that uh, of breaking the law of Moses, and those penalties are sometimes fines, uh, financial, right? Whether it's money or animals, or you know, you've got to make right whatever it is you did wrong, uh, and sometimes it's uh, the death penalty. All that's carried out not by the priests; the Levites don't do that. The king does that. So when you read a law like, you know, if anybody does this, they're to be stoned, put to death. Well, it wasn't the mob that was responsible to do that. It was the king uh, and and of course his bureaucracy, right? And so you might ask the question, how would we do this today? Uh, Okay, we won't. We, so the, the law of Moses says that if there's a child that is rebellious, stone them. Uh, well, we would not you'd, you'd go to prison for stoning your rebellious child today, right? Uh, and rightly so. We, we do not believe anybody has the right, and the government's not going to stone rebellious children or otherwise put them to death. That's civil. Uh, and so it's the administration of this law that falls to the civil government. And in the law of Moses, we find God telling the civil government how and what to do. And uh, as I said recently, uh, we talk about the kings of Israel, but they're really not kings in the truest sense because they are not sovereigns. Uh, They did not give the law. They're actually regents. They are uh, sort of governors because God is the king of Israel, and he appoints men to sit on the throne to represent him. Right, and so they—they're stewards, is what they really are, uh, and so, um, so that's—that's that's how we we make that distinction with civil, Billy. Yeah, so what is natural law? And you're right, Uh, anytime you find yourself walking into a conversation about natural law, you probably need to spend a lot of time listening and maybe even asking some questions because uh, depending on the context for the conversation, natural law may refer to different things. Generally speaking though, uh, what most people mean by natural law is what, uh, what we are able to discern about what's right and wrong from nature apart from God's revealed word. And when I say nature, I don't mean trees and rocks and fish. I mean, again, so the conscience, right? The conscience, Paul says in Romans, accuses or even excuses us. And he's not talking about Christians. He's talking about all people every person is made in the image of God. And part of what it is to be made in the image of God is that we have a conscience. And the conscience is uh, an example of how God reveals right and wrong apart from his direct revelation, uh, what we sometimes refer to as special revelation, which for us is what's contained in scripture. Uh, And so... Uh, the differences most often are not around what natural law is and the various conversations, but in what the natural laws is empowered to do, what can it accomplish? Uh, And so right now, for those of you who follow along online with with some of the the different debates that are happening, especially in the reformed world, so right now there's a particular debate between uh, those who are inclined to go the direction that Van Til went, Cornelius Van Til, apologetics professor at Westminster Seminary, uh, and those who are inclined to follow Aquinas, a, uh, a Roman Catholic scholar from the medieval period. Uh, in terms of their understandings, their, their different understandings about what natural law can accomplish with respect to salvation. Uh, and so, um, so that, I could do a whole series on natural law. We won't do that today, but, uh, but that's the basic idea. We understand that revelation, God has revealed himself, broadly speaking, in two ways. Through general revelation, which is available to all mankind. Paul in Romans 1, right? He says that, uh, that everyone is able and does know from creation that there is a God and that he is to be worshipped and served. Everyone knows this. Nature reveals it. Psalm 19, right? Uh, another classic passage on God's general revelation. Yeah? Yeah, so that period would have been the judges, and so judges would have handled that. Um, it's possible in that context, too, that the the clan or tribal leadership, remember there were the the 12 tribes, uh, and they were a very, very loose confederation at that time, and so there would have been elders in each tribe who would have probably played some role in that as well. Uh, Moses, remember, set that pattern up while he was still with the people of Israel, uh, where the elder, he, he couldn't personally render judgment in every dispute, and finally, his father-in-law prevailed upon him to set up elders in each tribe to handle that. So that's probably during the, that period of the judges prior to there being a king in Israel, how that would have been handled. Yeah, good question. So we've got that general revelation, what we can see not only in the creation, but the conscience is, is part of general revelation. Everyone has this. Uh, and, uh, and then there's special Revelation when God speaks through the prophets and the apostles, uh, which for us is, as I said, Scripture. That's special revelation. Natural law is a part of our understanding of general revelation. So, okay, other things before we uh, we dive back in. Okay, uh, so he's he's established from Jeremiah thirty one that the. The Mosaic Covenant was never intended by God to last forever. It was not an eternal covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant is an eternal covenant. Uh, It was enforced throughout the period of the Mosaic Covenant. And even after the Mosaic Covenant vanished away, the Abrahamic Covenant was still in effect. Uh, We've talked about this before, right? Why should we care when Paul tells us that if we believe in Christ, we are children of Abraham? Right. Uh, Nathan mentioned it in the sermon, right? Father Abraham had many sons, right? Why, why do I care? That's, if you stop and think about it for a second, if you don't understand that the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect and the promises that were made in that covenant and who those promises were to, it's really weird to sing a song about being children of Abraham. I mean, what a different time and place and culture and people. What in the world do we have in common with Abraham? Scripture says what we have in common with Abraham is our common faith. right? That Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And we too, Paul says in Romans 4, that God did this work in Abraham so that he would become the father of all who believe. And so the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. When Nathan read this morning the promises God made uh, that he would be that through Abraham all the families of the earth would be blessed. We are the ongoing fulfillment of that promise. God is fulfilling the Abrahamic uh, Abrahamic covenant promises in us and the generation before us and the generation after us until Christ comes again. So, let's... uh, Let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 1. And uh, if you'll allow me, Sarah, administratively. So uh, this lesson we'll record as chapter 8, verse 8, through however far we get. She always has to email me or message me afterwards and ask me to tell her what I'd like. So we just took care of that. Excellent. I'm, I'm already getting this week's work done. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And he's going to go on to, to, to describe that first covenant and its regulations. I want you to notice this key, verse 1, the contrast that's being set up. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. We can stop right there, and we expect at some point... He's going to finish that thought, right? And and if it had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, there must be some kind of regulations for worship and place of holiness, or uh, um, yeah, place of holiness now in the new covenant. And in fact, that's what he's going to do. Uh, but let's look at the rest of chapter nine from verse two up through verse ten. Having asserted this, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I've always read that as though he didn't have time. He was like, "We, we don't have time to stop and say any more about this. As I was preparing this week, I found myself wondering if he doesn't mean we actually can't speak in much more detail. We've lost these things, right? The, Israel doesn't doesn't have these things, or if they, of course, we do believe the temple's still standing, but it's all veiled. Only the, the high priest has ever seen it. He says in verse 6, these preparations... Having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. But this, the, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so what he's done here is he's, he's asserted that the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. So now he's reminding them of what those things were. He's also finding fault with it. He just told us that Jeremiah 31 reveals that there was a fault in this. And here's the fault. The fault is not only, according to Jeremiah 31, the fact the people of Israel didn't keep that covenant, but the fault is that that covenant could never have actually accomplished what is required. According to this arrangement, verse 9, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So he's continuing in this argument. He's, he's unfolding for us, how it is that the covenant with Moses uh, necessarily had to vanish. It wasn't sufficient. And we, sitting here this morning, and week after week, you may feel like, good night. I mean, how much longer are we going to beat on the fact that the Mosaic covenant's not in effect anymore? The point's been made, let's move on. But the author of Hebrews doesn't move on. His audience is determined to go back to it. And so he is determined to tear it down so that there will be nothing for them to go back to, but not, not just to take it away from them, but also to hold up for them Christ who is better than all of these things. Uh, it, it really is like a little kid, right? Uh, was it C.S. Lewis who said that our problem is that our passions are not too strong, but that they're too weak? That like children, we play in the mud, never imagining uh, the great things that are held out to us. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. You go back to Moses, and you go back to nothing. You gain nothing, and you lose everything. There is something so much greater held out to us in Christ. You gain nothing and lose everything if you go back. So he's continuing to unfold this. He's showing us what's wrong with that Mosaic covenant. But here's the turn. And this 9-11 is quietly one of the the fantastic uh, uses of the contrasting conjunction but, right? Like Paul in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy. Here. But when Christ appeared. See... You weren't getting salvation, atonement, finally and eternally accomplished for you in Moses. It was shadows. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, He's taken the, the Mosaic Covenant away from you. Beginning in verse 11, 11, he shows you what God has given you instead and how much greater it is. You had high priest, a high priest under Moses, but he had to keep doing this every year. Why? Because it didn't actually accomplish anything. It was a show. It was meant to teach you. It was meant to to reveal to you what God was really doing. Now he's done it. You don't need the show anymore. You don't need the, the, the shadows anymore. You have the substance. Christ is the high priest. And he didn't go into the earthly copy of the temple, the tabernacle, that tent that was made with hands he went into the heavenly temple that was the pattern upon which that one was built. And having gone in, as our high priest, he took blood in with him to make atonement, but not the, the, the ultimately worthless blood of animals, but our blood, human blood. He took his blood in to make atonement. I want to pause for a second. Why wasn't the blood of animals sufficient? Why couldn't it atone? Why weren't they perfect? They weren't sinners. And they had to choose one without blemish. They certainly didn't keep the law the way Christ did. I'm, I'm sorry, hold on just a second. You guys, you ne- this never happens. I never <laughs> can't tell what you're saying because so many are speaking. Joseph. They aren't made in the image of God. They're not made in the image of God. Who sinned? Man, Man sinned. Who must pay the penalty? Man. Man must pay the penalty. And from Genesis 3, when God first stripped an animal of its coat to provide a covering for Adam and Eve in their sin, Animals have been nothing but a symbol of what's needed, but were not themselves ever sufficient. And so a man had to do it. But if every man born is stained with the sin of Adam, if every man born is himself a sinner, he can't possibly die for anybody else's sin. Like the high priest in the Old Testament, he has to make his own atonement. And so Jesus Christ comes, fully God and fully man, but as a man not stained with original sin. Perfectly righteous and therefore an unblemished sacrifice. And he takes human blood, his blood, and applies it to the altar for our atonement. He entered, verse 12, once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves. Don't miss the by means of. If the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies without the blood of the sacrifice, what happens to him? He He drops dead. God strikes him dead. We've talked about it before. It's not a laughing matter, but there is something, I think, mildly humorous about the fact that they had to tie a rope around his ankle and they sewed bells into the hem of his high priestly garment. Right? There are Levites standing outside the veil listening, really hoping that the bells keep tinkling. Right? That he appears again outside the Holy of Holies. But if they stop, he's dead. And you start pulling on the rope. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year by means of the blood of calves and goats. That's not how Christ goes into the, the true Holy of Holies. He goes in by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Do you see how that's, how much better that is than what the high priest did in the Mosaic Covenant? What the high priest accomplished, if, if the high priest made atonement properly and went into the Holy of Holies having made atonement for himself and now for the people and applied the blood and did everything as he was supposed to. He was just gonna be right back there doing it again a year later. It wasn't eternal. Whatever it was, it wasn't eternal. Christ accomplishes and secures an eternal redemption as our great high priest who is both priest and sacrifice. Verse 13, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, if there was some value in these things ceremonially, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know, the author of Hebrews, as he's writing, the, the question that's just parked right there the whole time is, why would you go back? I, I can't say with any confidence, but it almost feels, by, by, by throwing in here the ashes of a heifer, it almost feels like he's trying to show them how ridiculous this is. It feels, it feels almost, and I know it's right in the, the context of the Old Testament, but it almost feels like he's, he's trying to draw out for them in the description of what they were doing, the nearly shamanistic character of it. Do you really want to go back to having the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on you? Does that feel to you like something that has an eternal consequence? You have something so much better than the ashes of a heifer. You have the blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, let me pause again. Any questions? Joseph. Uh, say that for me one more time. Like after- so between the cross and this yeah. and the destruction of the temple when the Mosaic covenant sacrifice was still being carried out would God have still struck the high dead even though that covenant wasn't in effect. So acknowledging that we're talk- we're speaking of a, a, a hypothetical because we're not aware of that having happened, I will tell you that I don't believe he would have been struck dead. And uh, the reason I don't believe the high priest would have been struck dead is because at the the death of Christ, with the, the tearing of the veil, what God was expressing is that there is no longer a holy place and a holy of holies. That we are no longer excluded from the presence of God as Adam and Eve were excluded from the garden and the people of Israel were excluded from the holy of holies. That's over with. And so there would have been no violation in and of itself for having entered without the blood of the atonement, without being the high priest, etc. cetera. Um, we know also, and, and this we hold loosely, but we know also from rabbinic tradition that, uh, so they had this practice of tying a thread to a, a goat and sending it out into the wilderness. And if the, the, the thread was red and represented the sin of the people, the blood guilt of the people, and if the goat came back uh, and the thread was white, God had accepted the atoning sacrifice and the sins were forgiven for another year. Rabbinic tradition. Now, I want to be clear. Rabbinic tradition is Jewish tradition, not Christian. There's, there's absolutely nothing in the rabbinic history. Uh, no one involved in compiling that history who has any interest whatsoever in uh, in uh, acknowledging Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And yet, in their own tradition, uh, it's recorded that after about 33 AD, the cord never came back white again.
1: It's recorded in the Talmud. The, the Talmud. Approximately 40 years.
0: Yeah, for about 40 years. I wouldn't say always, but it had come back white before. Uh, I don't know if it had never come back white or always come back white. It must have come back white because otherwise there wouldn't have been a contrast. They wouldn't have recorded, hey, it never happened again. Uh, and so you've got this 40 years starting at about where we would date the, the crucifixion of Christ. And my point is that, uh, that even, and, and that wasn't some weird tradition they made up for themselves, the, the law of Moses tells them to send the goat out into the wilderness. They had two goats, right? Uh, one of them is the scapegoat. That's a, a King James term that came into English. The scapegoat was sent out. So that's, that's what they're, they're talking about. Um, why would God have never done that again? It's because God's done with that. He's said to that people, we're, we're finished here. The thing that all of this was pointing to, he's come. You don't need that anymore, right? And so God quits participating. And uh, and for that reason, I would argue that, uh, yeah, it's, um, there wouldn't have been a high priest stuck, struck dead in the Holy of Holies after the crucifixion.
1: They would always lock the gate too, and the Talmud says that about that same time period, every morning the gate was open. Hmm. So again, kind of a, an
0: expression of... Openness, uh, yeah, access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that's what Paul's doing when he's going by the name Saul, uh, is he's persecuting the Christians. Uh, he represents the Jewish religious leadership and, uh, and in his zeal, he's going around rounding up Christians uh, and having them put to death. Stephen, for example, where Paul is holding the cloaks of those who are doing the stoning. Uh, Acts, is that seven? Yeah. Acts seven. So, um, so yeah, there, it was a very strained relationship. And, and also one that was a little more complex than just saying, oh, the Jewish leaders were going around killing all the Christians. Um, you know, Paul would go up into the synagogue on missionary journeys uh, and proclaim Christ as the Messiah. Uh, and uh, the typical response was to throw him out, but as he went, some of the Jews and most of the Gentiles would come with him. And that would be the beginning of a church in that city. So, yeah, and, and then you've got Jews who accept Christ as the Messiah but are wrestling with what that means about the law of Moses. Uh, and so you've got, within the church, what, the, what Paul refers to as the Judaizers. Uh, they're, they're trying to require Christians to keep the law of Moses, which Paul understands is no longer in effect. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a good source. There's historical sources as well outside of Scripture, but, uh, but that's a good starting place. Okay. We've got about five minutes left, but I'm going to stop here. We're not going to go past 14. Any other comments, questions? I have a question. Yeah, go ahead, Colleen. Um, so back to verse 7, I think it is. Unintentional of people. Yeah, man, I was hoping nobody was going an- an- <laughs> to ask that question. Um, is that from the Old Testament? It is. Yeah, yeah. When the Old Testament describes the various kinds of offerings you bring for the various kinds of sins that are committed, it makes reference to offerings for unintentional sins. So when, he was, when the high
1: priest was going in, he was only taking sacrifice for the unintentional sins. So what about the intentional sins? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they
0: should have already
1: been
0: done. They were, they yeah, penalties been had been already been uh, accomplished, right? Carried out for those. Oh, we're out of time.
1: No. <laughs> Go ahead, Graham. Does it does it mean accidental, or does it mean sins that you committed and aren't even aware that you committed? Uh, I,
0: I think it would include both. Yeah.
1: This is a good example of that: is, is women and men being separated, and I've actually flown to Israel and, and watched this being carried out in, in a seven forty seven. With a, a rabbi that wouldn't sit on his, on his seat. But with the mingling of men and women and, and menstruation, you don't know if those women were on. So you touch, you're, you're touching women, you know, just in the crowd, and, and you don't know. And now you're unclean and you don't know it. So to the altar you go.
0: That's just one example. It, uh, it is, I think, a, a wonderful expression of the absolute quality of the forgiveness of sin in the atonement of Christ. Uh, you know, some will ask uh, Am I only forgiven for the sins that I repent of, like that I confess? What about the sins I don't even know I, I committed? What do I do with that? You've got, of course, the famous story of Luther, who would spend hours in the confessional when he was Roman Catholic, uh, whose confessor was just so done with Luther. He finally said to Luther, one time he said, would you leave and don't come back until you've really committed some sins? Right? Go sin and come back. Luther once, after multiple hours in the confessional, Finished, stepped out of the confessional, remembered a sin he hadn't confessed, and stepped back into the confessional again, right? That'd be enough to drive anybody out of the priesthood. Uh, And so the the what one of the wonderful things we see in the reference in the Law of Moses and here with the author of Hebrews in this, this reference to unintentional sins being atoned for is listen, God knows, He knows everything. And he's holding us accountable for all the sins that we've committed, intentional and unintentional. But that accountability has been answered by Jesus Christ, all of it. Christ doesn't just die for the sins that you are aware of and uh, make some, some confession of, though, of course, we're called to repent of our sins and to repent of them particularly. And if we do know of a sin, we ought to be repenting of that sin particularly. But all sin is covered by the blood of Christ for those who belong to him. But we don't have to confess it to our pastor. No, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, just a humorous anecdote regarding Luther, I think the McTax is right about Luther said uh he speculated that that's why the head of that monastery had Luther transferred to the another. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, um Okay, so we, we're done through 14, we'll pick up in 15 next time. I say next time, Billy, you begin next week? Yep. So Billy in here, starting next week, is going to do, did it settle out to four weeks? Yes. Uh, four weeks, uh, a four-week series on evangelism, uh, the, the why and some of the how and, and all the rest. Uh, and so I'm very much looking forward to that. And remind me, Billy, does that lead us right into you doing Christianity Explored? That's right. I don't think I'm scheduled to teach Sunday school that. Morning. Okay. Well, we'll uh we'll figure out we may do a one off or we we may get one week of Hebrews in there and uh but then um after that in the Sunday school hour Even after that, we'll start going through the Yeah, Christianity explored for those of you who aren't familiar is a uh a one way to do evangelism uh that um that has seen quite a bit of success in London in particular, uh, but also in a few places stateside, uh, Colorado Springs, one of our churches, uh, Village Seven in Colorado Springs has had quite a bit of success in terms of uh, unbelievers coming in, hearing the gospel and believing it. And so uh, we're going to, uh, in Sunday school here, we're gonna go through it together so you all can see it and how it works and then uh, in the spring, we're going to actually encourage you to invite unbelieving fran- friends and family and whatnot, coworkers, to come participate in that with us. In the spring, it will not be on Sunday mornings during Sunday school. Uh, it'll be in the evenings during the week, and we'll, we'll have more information for you about that. So that's what's coming up. Okay, we've got Fellowship Picnic next. Let me close this in prayer, and I'll pray for the food as well. And uh, did wh- what happens, Xavier? Did... You should have interrupted me. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the truth that we find here in Hebrews, uh, for the eternal redemption that has been secured for us by Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest and has taken his own blood into the holy place for atonement. Father, we rejoice and give thanks. And we pray that, uh, that you would be with us now as we fellowship together We thank you for the food that you have provided, uh, for the reminder that it is as we take that food in that you know our needs and you provide for us. So we give thanks uh, that we are loved by a perfect God who is loving, gracious, merciful, and patient. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.